You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Peter and I recorded an extra episode this week. We caught up with Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap to talk all things football admin and the state of British football in general and to preview the Liverpool game coming up this weekend. He's joined us. It's Neil Atkinson. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well indeed. Uh, Looking forward to this one. Looking forward to the game tomorrow too. Yeah, yeah, it should be a cracker. Let's hope it is. Um, I think we'll be looking for different results, but uh, nonetheless. <laughs> um, but it, we've had John Gibbons on a couple of times, so we're, we're delighted to expand it out into into having you join us on the show this time. Um, comes at an interesting moment as well. I mean, for, for us, we've had an excellent win at Villa. Danny Welbeck's first goal on the occasion of his second start for the Blues. Um, rising optimism in general. We're also set for a good winning run, aren't we? Ah, except for one slight snag. And um, We've got the English, European and world champions next, plus high-flying Southampton and Leicester to come. Um, having said that, Jürgen is up in arms about fixture congestion and scheduling and has a pile-up of injuries. So that should bode well, shouldn't it? No, because you beat Leicester 3-0. <laughs> we won't mention the midweek game. But um, yeah, I mean, it, there's never a good time to play Liverpool, I think, at the moment is, is, is the key words here, Neil. Um, what's your view on it? Obviously, the congestion's a nightmare, isn't it? The congestion's a nightmare and it's the knock-on effect of the congestion. And I think that's what's driving Jürgen mad. I think Jürgen's relaxed about the idea that every now and again in England, I think he's now reached a point where he accepts, for instance, December will be busy. I think Jürgen's been been at that stage of his thinking for a while. You know, you've only got to look at our improvement um, through that month under Klopp. Uh, year one, we find December and January practically impossible under him. Um, and then from there, I think we very much tool up for that period. I think we actually plan to make it a big run where the games come thick and fast. And I think he is so into the way in which the players are trained and conditioned. He's, you know, he's, he's very much into the idea that you peak, you come off your peak, you go from there and all of that sort of stuff. I think with this, his frustration is that what has been apparent, and it has been apparent from, I would say, not just a, a few weeks ago, but from, you know, I think looking all the way back to March and April, we were doing shows on the Anfield Rap where I was saying, people have got to stop talking about 2019-20. They've got to start trying to plan 2020-2021. 
And I think that Jürgen is a very, not dissimilar to your manager, frankly, a, a very meticulous planner. And I think he's very good at being able to look ahead and anticipate problems and ramifications. And I think as a whole, his, his frustration is that English football, whichever branch of it you want to look at, has failed quite dismally to do that. And I think that that's what's driving him mad. I don't think it's just the idea of, oh, well, there's a few games. You know, what would Jürgen be thinking if there was a ton of postponements or anything like that? And it was the weather and it was short notice, as used to happen, happens less often these days, that I think he'd be much more relaxed about it. I think as a man who's very reasonable and logical, and I think sometimes the outside world, you all just see the hugs and the emotion, whereas he's got us where he's got us with meticulous planning, with unbelievable attention to detail. And I think what's driven him mad is he's looking at a football framework around him that just doesn't have or hasn't shown the same attention to detail and doesn't look capable of it and doesn't look capable of projecting into the future. Yeah, I mean, it's very exceptional circumstances, isn't it? And we've all got to wade through it, but I do think you know, when, you, when you're doing as well as Liverpool are in terms of involvement in competitions, it, it's always going to be very difficult. And yeah, I think things could have been organised better. I mean, my personal view, I think really if they'd have delayed the Euros, uh, for example, that would have greatly helped everything. Um, there's no particular need to have play, the tournament. About the Nations League, surely that just doesn't take priority at the moment. Yeah. I think, I yeah. think across the board, there's loads of ifs. But the point is, I think one of Jürgen's things will be that nobody's given. So the internationals, and I understand that the the FAs, not just, and we always see things through quite a, an English lens, but for instance, Slovakian football, and I've just picked Slovakia at random, but Slovakian football will be in part supported by their football association through the COVID period. And that football association will be short of money and it'll need to honour its contractual and televisual obligations to get money in. So I expect, I I both respect that and I'm sure that Jürgen does as well. But what you've seen is a situation where, so international football uh, for this season is not given any ground. You mentioned the Euros as well and there's the other tournaments and there's the international things. Then within there, you've also had, you know, the EFL and the EFL Cup had to happen. So we found a way to make that work. Uh, We're still going to do the FA Cup this season. Uh, I understand exactly why, but that's not given any ground either. Um, And then we keep moving right the way through in the Premier League obviously hasn't given any ground and the Champions League hasn't given any ground so what we've actually decided to do is put that burden solely on the footballers and then the next phase of where I think Klopp is irritated in an English specific sense is he feels as though television should be able to cooperate with one another and I don't think that's complex and I think that that could have been anticipated again months ago uh, that something like this had happened and then within there again and I know that Brighton and Graham Potter voted for it on two occasions there's the five sub question where he feels as though, well, that could have been an area where we can at least find some degree of compromise. And I think within all of this, I think that that's the frustration, really. And as I say, I don't think, and I wouldn't want, nor is this to say that I do think Klopp is right, but Klopp isn't inherently right because he's Jurgen Klopp. I think I think that Klopp is correct on this matter because you, you're getting to see before your very eyes, you know, games are played with much less intensity, Brighton, are less intense when I've seen them this year than they were last year, but they're still one of the most intense sides in the division because one of the things you're seeing is that you just can't run as hard. And on every metric, you know, there's opposition passings up, uh, passes per defensive actions up right the way across the league because managers are having to look after their players. And then, you know, you got a game which we played in against Manchester City, which was a genuinely excellent game of football for an hour before both sets of players. It was almost like an extra time in a legends game <laughs> it became walking football before your very eyes and 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 on top of that there is the lack of the preseason and and I do think that we 
as I say, I think that what frustrates him is just being able to project. And I'm I'm comfortable saying this on a Brighton pod, podcast because, firstly, I think that the people who operate Brighton at a boardroom level have shown an ability to communicate and to project into the future. And I think that the the the, the man who looks after the day to day football operations of Brighton is clearly a meticulous planner and a, and a real a really thoughtful person. Um, whereas I think elsewhere, there's a lot of English football on any given issue, which is unable to literally look beyond the end of the week. Yeah. I wonder I if also, the, yeah, sorry, I, Pete, I say almost the Champions League are more to blame for the, what you guys are going through currently than the, than the Premier League in a way. Because mm. while you could argue that, yeah, half 12 is a bad time, when you're playing one Wednesday and the next Tuesday, you could argue there is no good time to play. I don't know why for one season they didn't just have every team, one group playing always on Tuesday and one group playing yeah. always on Wednesday. I know normally they want to switch it, but this is surely exceptional circumstances. Completely agree. And you know, I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's a really good idea. And again, that could have been approached. Uh, similarly, uh, within that, there's well, the reason why, by the way, is because in some other countries, the television rights are split across two different stations across the different nights. But nonetheless, you'd have thought people could have at least got their heads together and said, for one year for the group stage, can we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, you know, with the TV thing, <clears throat> the fact is, I'm still not entirely sure. I know it will be in part because of the Far East market, but I'm still not entirely sure why we are so desperate to cling on to 12.30 Saturday. For me, there's a really neat, clear solution around the idea that you have two non-European sides that play each other, play Friday night. Uh, So you get two games in there across the four teams, the same on Monday. And then you have three games Saturday and three games Sunday, and you actually turn those games into a televisual event. If I'm BT, if I could have my first game kick off at four, my second game kick off at six thirty, and my third game kick off at nine. Well, I've, I feel I feel like that's that's better surely than half twelve. And then if I'm Sky, you know the same thing, but maybe it's two four thirty and and seven for the Sky games, and, and give them full heft and make it feel like cup final day. And I, I, and for me again, English football views all possible change as inherently negative. And I sort of understand why, because so many changes have actually been detrimental to our experience of the game. But this was something which. You know, if you'd got the three of us in a room in April and said, imagine what you think 2020-2021 is going to look like with a with a curtailed season and a no pre-season and, and, a, and, a, and a crushed start. Well, we'd have said, OK, well, you need to make some changes then. And we, we could have come up with that. Uh, and I think it's what is frustrating is there's a lot of people who are meant to be custodians of the game and are meant to be custodians of footballers and who are meant to be able to look into the future, who've just sort of willfully refused to do so, in part because of short-term advantage, but in part because they just find it all too hard. And in the Premier League, not necessarily in the EFL, but in the Premier League, those people I've just just described are all pulling down six-figure and at times seven-figure salaries and have shown themselves unable to, as I say, do the bare basics of their job, which is to ensure footballers are fit to play. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of things that could have been done a lot better, that's for sure. And um, going back to the substitute thing, actually, just one point on that. Um, as you as you said, Liverpool um, were joined in, with Brighton in wanting to have five subs. The notion behind it, I think, was that uh, apart from anything else, we had a decent squad in depth. So although our team wasn't the best in the world, um, we had that strength and depth at that level into the substitutes bench. But the interesting thing for me is that actually that works in a different way, that what should work for the teams that voted against it. Because if you've got a smaller squad, all the more reason you want to rotate what you have got to avoid this fatigue that we've yeah. just described earlier on. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And you're beginning to see even now because of the curtailed pre-season, all injuries are up for all clubs. And when 
uh, most clubs in the country start playing the more intense schedule come December and January, which the Champions League clubs have been have been play, have been going through. I think you will see uh, a bit of a change in tone on that as people have to live that reality. And I, you know, I do in part agree with you. I think the idea of I think one of the fears, and we saw it at Anfield, Chelsea came to Anfield second to last game, and on the hour, Lampard changed his hole from three, and he brought on more pace. And we were 4-1 up, I think, at the time, and he got it back to 4-3, and he would, they had us on the run, to be honest with you. And I can understand why, if you're, for instance, Sean Dice, you're thinking, well, I don't want that to happen to me on 60 minutes. I can understand that in a practical sense. But there's a part of me which says, yeah, but this is one season, and it's also the product. It's the players who are on the pitch. It's the players that people around the world want to watch. And surely we want to protect them. And that's, that's, that is also, as you say, it's for all clubs. It's for Callum Wilson, who's got a life history of muscle injuries. Last season, he gets a, he gets a hamstring for Bournemouth uh, in December when the games begin to intensify. He's had one already. That is for all clubs. And, you know, I just think, I, I just think it was... And the decision around it was remarkably petty. I think it reflects well on Brighton that they didn't go with the what gets classed together as the bottom 14, that they showed the ability to think about it. And I think that in, in a really short-term piece of thinking, if I am, for instance, Steve Bruce, I might go, oh, no, 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 that will just help the top teams. But that's remarkably short-termist. It really is. It's remarkably short-termist. When ultimately, as I say, the, the main thing that I want is the health of the footballers. Um, the next part of this is that what then gets pointed out is, for instance, in the game between Manchester City and Liverpool I referred to earlier, Klopp made two subs and Guardiola only made one. But one of the things that happens there is that Guardiola, he's, got, he's getting Phil Foden ready and he almost doesn't want to add the extra energy because it would actually be disruptive. At that point, the game had settled into a pattern. Klopp was holding back a sub in case he got another injury and what he didn't want to do was have to play with 10 at Manchester City. If you give them five, they'll feel the ability to use four. The other night in Europe, we made uh, four changes on the hour mark, but we held the last one back until there was only five minutes to go, even though we were getting beat off the fear of getting another injury. You didn't want to throw it away. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of people who should know better because it involves just the use of the brain for two minutes who write about football for a living. It were quite happy to point out, oh, well, if you're not, why aren't you using all the subs then? If you think we need more subs, why aren't you using all the subs? As though they've got some sort of punchline that's inarguable uh, to, to, to a joke. Here we go. Well, obviously, look at them there. You know, they both moaned about the subs and they only used three between them. There's bigger picture things going on. And, and I, I just think it's reflected badly. And the thing I would also point out across this is the Italians have sorted it. The, the Spanish have sorted it. The French have sorted it. The EFL has now sorted it and gone to five subs. The Scottish Premier League went to five subs, and that's a league that people in England and, and journalists in England looked down their their nose at, and they were prepared to pre- to protect the players. And the way that local journalists sort of, I want to say local, they write for national papers, but they cover specific patches. The way they will rally around the decisions made by their club as inalienably good and always cast anything any top six club wants to do as obviously bad and obviously detrimental to the spirit of football is ridiculous. Mike Ashley is no custodian of English football and nothing in any of his behaviour has ever suggested he is. So he's not on this matter either. You may or may not agree with him, but he is not on this matter. He has no moral authority. And I think that of, you know, the Premier League clubs as a group, and I mean the 20, not 14 and 6 or anything like that, I don't think there's any amongst them who have any moral authority greater or lesser than the other and any moral authority greater or lesser than anyone else in football. And yet we've done a lot of this recently where we've decided that there's actually a great deal of morality in football. There's a lot of moral high ground and there's a lot of people clambering onto that moral high ground and holding it for dear life. Yeah. Well, you, you yeah, mentioned... I, um... I agree about the five subs. I mean, I think it would help Brighton. So I, and, and also... 
I mean, I think the Brighton thing's probably a lot of it self-interest as well, but it is kind of, it does seem for the good. And it seems crazy that the lower leagues have it. And, you know, the, the Championship, League One, League Two have nine subs, even though they've notionally got a lot smaller squads than the Premier yeah. League. And that, for the next part, but the next part of this as well, Peter, is that we'll be talking about. I think genuinely, unless it changes, I think we'll. I, I would be surprised if an English representative makes the last four of the Champions League. Which you can say, well, that's just big club business, but it it reflects the coefficient, which is the number of European places that we get. And in general, you know, listen, I don't want Manchester United to win as much as a Tom Bowler, and that's my God-given right as a as a Liverpool supporter. But in general, I think that there is there is something if we want to sell the Premier League, and I do literally mean sell, I mean commercially, and we're talking here about club owners who made this decision as branded as the best and most competitive league in the world, then part of that means they do need to be represented at the at the business end of the European competition. And then the next phase of that as well is whilst <clears throat> The Premier League's a hugely multinational competition. The, the English players, with the exception of Jaden Sancho, do all play in the Premier League. So England will have, you know, of its 23-man squad for the Euros, 22 of them will have this lived reality that will be different from much of the squads that are elsewhere. Yes, you know, there'll be players who are playing in the Spanish squad, like Thiago Alcantara, who plays for Liverpool. You know, he will have had to, had to put up with this as well. But he'll have, you know, 14 teammates who haven't. And, you know, I'm again, I'm as a Liverpool supporter, I don't hold a massive candle for the English national side. But I do think that, you know, if England do look shorn of energy by the time we get to Jan- look get to June, will will we be looking back at this period saying, well, we could have protected these footballers a lot more, we could have supported these footballers a lot more. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe England will cut a, cut a swathe across Europe and they'll do brilliantly. And it's you know, it's it's worth remembering it's a game and and things can happen, but but it does also appear to me to be really, really short-sighted and actually just remarkably petty. Yeah. yeah. And also, you've got the other thing about injuries. Again, if England players, you know, come like Kane or, you know, someone crucial, Sterling, picks up an injury just before the Euros, whatever, we've got only got really ourselves to blame as a country. Yeah, I mean, it's looking ominous, isn't it, as well? The Germans got restart underway much sooner, so they've been able to therefore facilitate a bigger... Uh, pre-season, uh, or sorry, close season, I should say, which in itself is is a worry. Yeah. They're already got a, a smaller league as well, so they're going to be spaced out. And only one domestic cup is much better. And one, yeah, exactly. So that that helps for sure. Um, you mentioned the bigger picture, well, project big picture. You had plenty to say on that, didn't you, Neil? <laughs> at the time, I, I, <laughs> I listened to your um, to your comments on on the um, Anfield wrap about that. And I thought you spoke very well about it. Um, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit for us here as well, just to tell us what, what your thinking was on that when it came up? Yeah. Um, because obviously Liverpool as a club, because of the owners, um, have, have played a major part in this, haven't they? Yeah, I, I want to be quite clear about this. My issue or my... I think the game and the structure of the league and the structure of the way in which clubs are run and governance is all in need of significant reform. Um, now... I want to be clear that that's not because I support Liverpool uh, within this. Liverpool are a mover and a driver behind this. And there was bits within Project Big Picture that I didn't like um, within sort of what they planned. There was bits where I thought 
what was frustrating from the outside was you actually have a starting position for negotiation here where, you know, if the, if the Premier League had been able to find a way to speak with one voice, there was room for a back and forth. But I think that showed Liverpool, Manchester United and anyone else involved misread the way in which English football goes about its business at the minute, which is to slaughter first and ask questions later. I think the other thing to say about the document as it was leaked was that it wasn't a finished document and it wasn't ready to be put to the outside world at that stage. And a lot of the leaks sort of focused in on the more sort of, well, the, the bit I disagree with, to be quite honest with you. But I, I do think that English football, the Premier League, the first starting point I'd take is that it needs to come to a much better relationship in terms of distribution of cash with the EFL. Uh, it needs to support EFL clubs. And the championship for me is, if I say the championship's the problem, I'm not attacking the clubs who are within it. But you've got a situation where the current wages to turnover, last published wages to turnover of the championship, this is just wages to turnover was 108%. 108%. The championship is, is this massive cliff on either side of it. So there's a huge cliff from the Premier League down to the championship, uh, which everyone's desperate to scale. And then you fall off the cliff and you get broken. The other way is that the cliff comes from League One to the championship. So by the time you get from League One now into the championship, you climb all the way up the cliff, you get to the top, you're absolutely exhausted. And a number of clubs now just fall back down because the championship is such, is such a strange step within English football. A massive issue with that is the parachute payments, and it was one of the things that Project Big Picture did want to get rid of. Uh, and the parachute payments are are now almost entirely without any meaningful merit for English football. Um, they skew everything. Uh, they ruin the way in which they hurt clubs to such an extent. No one stops to ask this fundamental question, and it comes up every year. Why is the richest game, what the game that is deemed the richest game in world football, played between sides that finish 23rd and 26th in the English pyramid? That is, when you stop to actually literally ask that question and then answer it, that is surely an act of absolute madness. That that happens every single year and no one gets to grip with the reality of it. When you then extend that through and you begin to talk about, for instance, voting rights, whilst I do not want a Premier League that's controlled by the top six clubs, it seems very strange to me to have a reality where Fulham have a vote around the future of the Premier League when they finished beneath Brentford in the league table last season and basically Joe Rails scoring two belter goals in the final of the playoffs is the only in extra time is the only reason why Fulham are not Brentford. And that's not to attack Fulham. It's to say that that's absolutely berserk. So Fulham, we just talked about the five something and it's a really small thing, the five something, but Fulham are making decisions that have huge knock-on effects are, are able to vote as part of a decision-making process that has huge knock-on effect on whether or not Liverpool can, for instance, feel the strongest side they would like to be able to for the Champions League knockouts. And you can understand therefore why Liverpool end up for me coming up with the wrong solution, but feeling like, well, there's a problem here and it needs solving. And mm. until you deal with the championship, until you find a way to soften that cliff face, until you find a way to distribute the money better, but also to say we can't we can't incentivize gambling based behavior because it doesn't take it, it drives everyone else up. Brighton for me, I've been in the Amex. I love this I love Brighton the place. Brighton to me feel like a Premier League club. But Nottingham Forest have got two European Cups. They feel like a Premier League club. Uh, you know, Swansea feel like a Premier League club. That are basically, we're in a situation where I now think we've got somewhere between 30, 30 and say 38 clubs in English football who have the attendance, the reach, the catchment area, the scale to feel like Premier League clubs. But 
There can only be 20 of them at any one time. And those 20 are hugely financially rewarded in a way that skews the rest of English football. Yeah, Given I mean, what I, you just said. It very difficult to compete with the teams, having obviously been in the Championship itself, but not been in the Premier League, to compete with the, the teams on you know, massive parachute payments. And I agree with you. I don't think it, they should exist. I think it's the sign of the failure of the league to distribute money that they're needed and they, they probably aren't even needed now. They're just spent on more players and on more wages. They're not like used yeah. to kind of support them in their current situation. Uh, given what you said, Neil, as well, is there potentially within this debate uh, an argument for rebranding the championship as Premier League 2? Because you look at the attendance levels uh, across Europe and I think they, they're usually in the top four. They might be down to fifth now, I'm not sure, but they're usually in the top four of attended leagues in Europe and that's our second tier. So there clearly is a large number of clubs with a big enough fan base and a big enough profile um, to potentially fit the bill for that. What, what would you say to that? I think I, I, for me, there's only one way in which I don't feel like Premier League 2 is a desirable outcome. I think it's a completely desirable outcome. The only thing that I think hurts it is the simple sentence that the point of a Premier League is you can only have one of them. Uh, apart from that, for me, I think I think it's time for Premier League Two. I think if you were to take the Premier League, so the the, the Project Big Picture plan took seventy five percent of the money, kept it with the Premier League, and distributed twenty five percent through the EFL. I think if you were to take something like thirty two clubs and create a Premier League One and Two, two divisions of sixteen, do something quite interesting with end of season, where I wouldn't necessarily do a playoff system, but you could have the top five all play each other once at a neutral venue in each division and the bottom five play each other once at a neutral venue. Really exciting games with loads riding on them. So there's an additional game for each side there. So you end up playing 34 games rather than 30 unless you're in the middle. So you've got loads riding on it. You could really change that and make it really, really intense. You could make that supporter orientated. So, you know, 90% of the tickets at Wembley go to supporters for these neutral venue games for the biggest, the biggest teams. But for all the teams, you know, there's loads you could do. And if you were to then say, to t- you wouldn't need to therefore say 75 and 25, you could even reduce that and have it be almost 85 and 15. But even then, you'd still find a way to get more money to the remaining sides that were in the EFL than they currently get. And you can make that a fairer distribution. And then within that, you can also just sort of change the rules. You can say that, you know, we... We make a we make a decision uh, that wages go up and down across the whole football club. Um, certainly across the whole football club over a certain earning threshold. Uh, if you go in and out of the Premier League, so that automatically happens. So if you get relegated from the Premier League, you know, literally overnight, your wages cut by fifty percent. But what what that would then do is, if you were to smart be smart with that, what you'd have is you'd have say the teams that finish bottom three of Premier League One and top three of Premier League Two all get the same money. So they automatically all get the same money. And then it means the following year, the flat sides that have gone down are automatically getting Premier League money to an extent, along with the other teams that take you down to 32nd in the, in the pyramid. And you've eased the cliff. And for me, easing the cliff, sanding that cliff, making that much more mild, much more of a slope rather than a cliff edge is the thing you need to do. And then what that does, it firstly means that there's more money that can go to the, the EFL teams that remain, but it allows them to work out the sort of EFL club they want to be. Because let's be honest about this, there's a lot of EFL clubs that I think just want to... they predominantly, yes, do they want to win? Of course they want to win. But they also just want to be community vehicles. And I shouldn't minimise that by saying just. To be a community vehicle is a phenomenal thing for a football club. And we've got so many football clubs, and we've seen it through this crisis, who are at the hub of a community, while simultaneously their future's threatened. So it's absolutely fine for a club the size of Accrington, to use them as an example, to be happy being Accrington, and to be a community vehicle, and to be something the community can be proud of, whether it wins, loses, or draws. And I think at the minute, EFL clubs, all of them, 
especially those, you know, well, no, at different phases of the pyramid. So many of them are just in fights for survival. They're unable to take those other roles on. And the other thing I do, and I don't think it's immodest, and I am quite passionate about it, I've been really lucky with the Anfield rap. I've gone around the world and I've watched Liverpool play pre-season tournaments. And genuinely, it's easy to call them money spinners. But there are people who love Premier League football and Premier League football clubs all over the world. And one of the things I took, you know, I take from it is that they would quite like competitive games to watch. So you could have a Premier League tournament that you could play abroad every few years. I wouldn't do it every year. But the other thing I'd like, that allows, by the way, people like me, you, to go to those places and watch our team play overseas. Because ultimately, I'm, I'm really lucky I support Liverpool. And most seasons, Liverpool play European football. That's not the case for Brighton. The idea of being able to watch a football club overseas is something I think should be available to every supporter in the country. So I'd look at doing a Premier League tournament every four years that you could have have elsewhere. I'd have, if you were to do Premier League 1 and 2, I'd have the EFL Cup has a European place, but it's only available for clubs to be entered within Premier League 2 down. So if you win that, you get a European place. The FA Cup gets you a European place. But the other thing I'd do... And it's such an easy thing. I'd take the Premier League under-23s and under-21s out of the EFL trophy. And the European competition, UEFA, they're starting something called the Europa Conference. And I'd have the winner of the EFL trophy every year play in the Europa Conference. And the reason why is because there's no logical, simply where you are born, if you are a football supporter in this country, if you support Doncaster, you should be able to start a season, I think, being able to dream of European football next season. And the EF, if you did that, something like that, with something like an EFL trophy, that the 60 teams who were left in the, in the EFL were able to compete for, they'd have that on the horizon. Because all we want is something to hope for. And there's loads that you could do. And my biggest criticism, genuinely, with Project Big Picture was that it wasn't big picture enough. And I do wish, you know, I think there was stuff in the presentation and obviously it was a leaked document, but I genuinely think we can look at so many aspects of the game and in really quite simple ways, find ways to ensure the future of all football clubs, ensure that all football clubs can be the type of football club they want to be and have the freedom to do that if they execute it well. And then give every football supporter in the country the idea of something to dream for, that this time next year we could be in Europe. And I think all of that's so achievable. But what we can't do is decide that we ultimately will have it be defined by 20, 20 Premier League clubs. We will not sort of, and also we will limit our thinking behind whatever makes tomorrow be as much like yesterday as possible. The game's different now. Last little thing, I've just talked for ages. It's, we're, we're approaching 30 years since the Premier League. It's worth pointing out that 30 years prior to 1992, Bill Shankly hadn't still, still hadn't won the first division with Liverpool. But that's the that's the scope of thirty years in football, and you know the Premier League was a massive change, and it's around the same time as the Champions League, and it's a massive change. But football had changed massively in the thirty years prior to that. And at the minute in the Premier League, I am of the view that the vast majority of clubs have spent too long solely wanting tomorrow to be like today, and just wanting that that gravy train to continue for them for forever. And I know I say this from a, a place of privilege being a Liverpool supporter and I have to be conscious of that, but I am fortunate the minute I support what would be difficult to argue isn't one of the best five football teams in the world. But ultimately, and I mean it with the greatest of respect to the football club, I speak to people from it uh, on the Anfield Rap all the time, but why Burnley and not Bolton? Why Burnley and not Blackburn? Why Burnley and not some of these other places from a supporter's point of view, not from an administration of the club point of view, not where it's all gone wrong. I'm not asking for the, the textbook answer. My point is, 
why do Burnley get this huge amount of largesse every single year and their supporters get to be part of that when that isn't open to everybody else? Yeah, yeah fair point. Well, Neil, I could listen to you for ages, so it's fine. You can go on as <laughs> much as you want. Uh, first thing to say. <laughs> Second thing is, I, I agree with you that I think the League Cup restructure is needed. I've thought that for quite yeah. some time. In my personal view, I think you take out the European competing Premier League teams. Yeah. Possibly you take all of the Premier League teams out, maybe. Um, but you make it more appealable, more winnable to to clubs that can dream, as you said, like Doncaster. And I think that's an absolutely spot-on point there. Um Apart from that, I mean, Peter, I don't know if you wanted to say anything on that before I move on to a related subject. I mean, the only other side is I remember in the old days in the lower league, when we were in the lower, you know, in like League One, League Two, the idea of playing, you know, Liverpool or Man U in the League Cup third round, if you you got your way through, yeah. was a really big draw. And it's, yeah, there's, I can see both sides. I mean, we, we are about the only big European league, I think, to have two cups, aren't we, these days? So Yeah, and I think, I think that's an important thing to remember. And I don't think that should be sort of, you know, I wouldn't cast that aside lightly. What I would say is you'd still have the FA Cup and the FA Cup would still have the same sort of aspect to it, the idea that you can you can get that and that that's possible. But I think the other thing is that this is part of trying to find a give and take with with all teams to mm. say, you know, I, I was so irritated with Shrewsbury last season when the, the replay thing was a big problem. And the reason why I was irritated wasn't because, wasn't because I thought Shrewsbury were rude or anything like that. What irritated me was... They were saying about all the difference the replay money would make to them uh, from a Liverpool point of view and the fact that it wasn't going to be priced as much and all of that. And there was a part of me that was screaming in the back of my mind that if infrastructure funding at EFL levels is so poor, you have to rely on the luck of turning around a 2-0 deficit against Liverpool to be able to change your training ground, then trust me, Liverpool aren't the problem. Football finance is the problem. The way the money's distributed is the problem. That's the problem. Liverpool aren't the problem. And I, when I hear that about cup replays, cup runs, I, the best reason why Shrewsbury should want to get a draw with Liverpool is because they can progress to the next round of the FA Cup. Not for the money, but for the glory. The money should be secondary to the glory, but the way we make the money secondary to the glory is by ensuring that enough teams have got enough money mm. and rethinking how that money is distributed. And I think that that's what I've always found difficult. You cannot plan long-term plan a football club, its infrastructure, the way in which it will operate, the training facilities it has around the idea that one year we might get a bit lucky and get a cup run. That's oh, crackers. What that's was that? Absolutely, yeah, there's no question about that. So, you know, Liverpool play Shrewsbury in the FA Cup in the fourth round. We end up in a situation where it genuinely isn't in Shrewsbury's interests with 10 to go to take a game that's 2-2 and make it 3-2. Because the next round draw, they might just get a team that's also from the, the same division as them and they don't get the, the gate receipts. Well, that's crackers. It should be in Shrewsbury. And I'm sure those players were given everything they had. But my point is more, the fellas who are in the boardroom of Shrewsbury shouldn't be thinking, Jesus, lads, 2-2 is sound here. What they should be thinking is, let's have the glory of Shrewsbury Town. Yeah. No, I... I agree with that. And I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, it obviously does help teams. I don't think necessarily, I mean, any team who is worth their, worth, you know, what is doing a good job won't be planning. They'll just use it to maybe do something extra that they couldn't do before rather than actually planning. Yeah. Yeah, but the last thing I'd say on this, and genuinely one of the things that I'd like to see done differently is, I think we have the thing that, that we say, and to go back to, again to the five sub thing, we say this, that... European competition isn't just good for the, the, the English side who play in it, but it's good for the country. But what we've never done is we've never actually rooted that in financial reality. Mm-hmm. I think you could quite easily come to an agreement, and I do mean this quite easily, you could come to an agreement with the, with the European sides if you were able to reform the game 
in a meaningful way. And that also includes ownership, by the way, because right now, for instance, if I'm John Henry, owner of FSG with the owners of Liverpool, and you're saying to me, hang on, you want us to give more money to the lower leagues, but they might go to the fella, people like the fella who used to run Berry. Well, he literally boasted of never having set foot in Berry. That's crackers. Why should we do that? So we've got to have a real cl- sort of clarity around who should or shouldn't own these football clubs. But there's a part of me where I think you could say to them, right, okay, we'll do that. We'll fix that transparency. We'll, you know, you, you don't want to play the EFL game, cup games anymore. Okay, we'll deal with that. But what we want in return, and this is why it was frustrating, there was never a negotiation, was can we have some of your European money? We don't want very much, but can you have 5%, 7.5%? If you were to take 7.5% of the clubs' European money, uh, that they got in, in 1819 and just distribute that before you even bring an EFL functionary in. If you just literally gave clubs the money, you'd end up distributing out around 300, 400,000pounds per club. That's more than Shrewsbury are getting from an, from an FA Cup run. But within that, therefore, you've got to be able to have a relationship with these clubs, have transparency, but you've also got to have that give and take. And the way in which the door was closed on something like Project Big Picture to me, it just suggests that there's not the maturity and there's not even the leadership to be able to have a debate at this point. There's loads you can do. The game's awash with money. And one of the reasons for Project Big Pictures, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the other big clubs anticipate, you know, FIFA want to run a Club World Cup, which is with 24 participants. And supposedly they're prepared to put down 100 million, 150 million per team just to enter. If FIFA do that, and Liverpool and Man United go and play in it, and it disrupts the league. One of the things I'd say is English football has always been behind the curve. So there's a really easy way to get ahead of the curve here, which is to say to Liverpool and Man United, we'll do everything we can to support you in that. We just want 7% of the money. You're getting 100 million. We'll have 7 million quid off each of you. That's 14 million. 14 million that we could put to clubs who are in crisis. There's loads of bits and pieces that you could do. It just needs there to be leadership and imagination. And the idea that there does need to be a little bit of give and take unless you want full government intervention. And I wouldn't have a problem with full government intervention either. It's just that at the minute we've got the government that we've had. And all previous governments that we've had have looked at the Premier League and gone, well, let's make him money, so let's not worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, Peter. What I was going to say was the while you, the other fourteen, the the you know the, the over voting on stuff, the problem will be. I mean, I completely see that a sixteen club Premier League, oh. eighteen at least, would be good for England and would be good for you know from the point of view of our players often are knackered at tournaments and that sort of thing. But from the point of view of teams who certainly the the, the bottom ten of which Brighton obviously are part. you're basically giving yourself a, a double the chance of going down or not being in a Premier League, and that's. But I agree. Yeah, of course you would. But what I would say is that at some point, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, at some point in the next 20 seasons, Brighton are getting relegated. Oh, yeah, completely. And and at some point it will just happen, an injury crisis, you appoint the wrong manager, then you make it worse, you sack that one, you get the next fella and he's the wrong manager. Uh, you know, you've recruited badly for one summer and then you'll go down. There'll be the parachute payments. But if you don't bounce straight back up, that money begins to dry up. Oh, yeah. And suddenly you're back in crisis. earlier about the, the looking at the bigger picture rather than the, you know, yeah. the short-term thing. But I don't think a lot of Premier League clubs do that, to be honest. No, they don't, they don't. And that's the problem. And that's the sort of, you know, for me, that's why I would look at the Premier League too and I'd look to smooth the curve. But yes, the problem you'd have is that from a voting point of view, everybody just sort of thinks, well, it won't be us. Yeah, and, you get the big six and you might get like Everton, who currently mm-hmm. probably would think they're not going to go down and one or two others. But I would have thought generally any team could go down. And so, yes, logically, that would say, well, maybe we're going to make it better when we do. But the other logic is we could be one of those extra four who go and then... Yeah, and that's I completely agree. And that's why I think you need to make sure that firstly that you're... 
the money would be at present to a degree. I think that would obviously be, you know, the money's got to get shared between 32 clubs and you've got to work that out a little bit differently. The other part of that, though, is is making clear that it will be central to the product. And that's why I think, again, giving clubs the opportunity in a structured Premier League way to, for instance, do stuff like worldwide, worldwide tours, worldwide competition, I think that'll be important as well. But yeah, I mean, listen, everything I've just described here is, you know, in real politic terms, it's it's very much pie in the sky. And one of the issues with the way in which the big picture stuff was leaked in the first place was it was leaked and, every, and the focus, understandably, in a sense, was on very much the negative sort of connotations. I do think that, you know, pres- presentationally, there's a lot to think about. And I also just think in general, you do have a problem, uh, as you say, within the way in which the Premier League voting works where effectively, you know, and again, I don't mean this sort of overly disparagingly, but Fulham, um, Fulham a good example right now. Who's a good example right now? Who just came? So, yeah, Fulham are a half-decent example. They've at least got some recent Premier League experience. But sides like Bournemouth and Watford are now out of the Premier League and they've got no ability to vote on this stuff and they've been around in Premier League football for six years, seven years in some instances. So you end up in this situation, you know, the point where Brighton go down, you could have been a really valuable, useful side within the Premier League, it would be a really good test like you are at the moment for good sides. You could have played 15 years of Premier League football and then suddenly you've got absolutely no say on how the dominant league in the country works and how it distributes its money. And you're yeah. a bit like, well, that's that's not great if you've just contributed to the thing for 15 years and some sides could just come up who've never played Premier League football before, never got near playing play, Premier League football and suddenly now they've got that vote. And that's why, as I say, the governance stuff, I understand that no one wants... Liverpool and Manchester United's boardrooms to control the way English football operates. I completely understand that. And I understand how you end up at that point logically. And that's where maybe, just maybe, we do need to look for outside agencies to come in for something that's almost act like off-comp for football. Theoretically, this should be the FA. But in all these conversations, the FA have made themselves absent and not fit for purpose over a long period of time. And I think that, you know, that's something worth looking at. It's, it's driven me mad listening to Gary Neville talk about the importance of an independent, uh, an independent governance body that sits over football. There's this thing in the back of my head every time he does it going, isn't that the FA, Gary? Isn't that the Football <laughs> Association? And yet he's doing it and he's got, and he, he always refers to him. He's got, I've got friends at the FA. And I'm like, well, you could do with ringing them up and asking them to do the job. But they've not been doing the job for so long that all of this yeah. stuff, which is needed an active hand and some leadership, has disappeared. And, you know, the thing that ends up happening to Clark is fascinating. All these meetings that he, he said he had no knowledge of and then it transpires he was present for. But within them, from the, the what gets reported back, it's not as though he was some sort of, you know, bold, sword-wielding guardian for the League Two clubs. You know, it's the whole thing is, it is a shame. And so much of this is back to, it does just need someone, not just someone, but a number of people who can be genuinely forward-thinking, who can be accountable, who want to change the game for the good of the game and who can make that sell. And I think one of the things that also happens with the big picture stuff is that there's a complete vacuum and that cell is therefore filled by people who want to be negative about any form of reform because John Henry will not speak on the record. The Glazers won't speak on the record. You're left with Rick Parry talking from the AFL point of view, doing his best and trying to put over, listen, I've got these clubs and they're in crisis. But the whole conversation gets dominated by the idea that we cannot have any form of change. And if we do not have any form of change, the current measures to bail clubs out at in the Championship League 1 and League 2 we'll just keep the wolf from the door for three years and then in three years time we'll have another crisis in football finance but what will happen is everyone will go hang on didn't we solve that three years ago and the answer is no we didn't because we didn't make any any drastic structural change we just threw a little bit of money for a bit 
Well, this segues into not nicely into my other points on the footballing debates in general. I wanted to mention, which is related, um, this inertia, this prevarication, has led to the DCMS uh, committee chairman Julian Knight coming out in very staunch criticism of uh, football authorities and what they haven't done so far mm. since the big picture uh, leak came out. Um, what's your take on that, Neil? Because Obviously, that you know, we, nobody's getting together in enough efficient detail to push things forward as quickly as the lower league clubs would need and want, given their finance finances yeah. being in a precarious state. We're getting closer and closer to actually D-Day because the way payrolls run for football yeah. clubs, from what I can gather down below, so the end of November is really significant. Yeah. I think within it, you just sort of, again, it's back to the Premier League's offer. The Premier League's offer was, was just, it was the bare minimum. Um, and it was also... And this is the problem, to go back to the other issue, the thing about the championship, supposedly there's a reluctance amongst the Premier League clubs to support championship clubs because they could be competing with them. And this is where it is all just a bit world's gone mad. And this is back to the idea that, I'll say it again, I don't want to hold up uh, FSG or Liverpool or John Henry as the guardians, the moral guardians or custodians of English football. I don't think they are that. It's a hedge fund, for God's sake. But this is where I will not, and I it sits so uneasily with me to see sides that finish routinely between 7th and 20th held up as the moral guardians or custodians of English football. They're just not. They're, they're acting in the interest of their own football club, and that's fine. But when they're, they're spoken of as though there is something sort of heroic about what they're doing, there is a problem. It's a ticking clock, and I think that because there will be the will within the Premier League not to be seen as having withheld money, that means a club does go to the wall. I think that the League One and League Two clubs will find themselves in a position where they will be sufficiently defended over the course of yeah. this season. Um, beyond that, I think it'll get trickier and trickier because I think that unless there is something that's bringing about change, there will be a reluctance from the Premier League to continually be the go-to. And over and over again, I think the cost that the Premier League as a unit, as a corporate unit of 20 clubs, let me be really clear, I'm not just attacking the bottom 14, the cost, the bloodletting the Premier League of 20 will want to extract from the lower league clubs will increasingly become more significant. So stuff around academisation, stuff around young players, that'll become more and more of an issue. I don't think it necessarily needs government intervention and I wouldn't want intervention from this particular government on the question either. You know, I don't think they've shown themselves mm. as fit for purpose or having an understanding around sport in general and, and football in particular. Um, and so that would concern me. But I do think in general that if the Premier League cannot be compelled to think, sorry, that cannot, cannot bring itself to its senses to think bigger, it may just need to be compelled at some sort of stage by by the government. There's the, you know, the Conservative Party's manifesto, they were pushing for a fan-led review of, um, a fan-led review of football. Precisely how that would be fan-led and the terms of that review are obviously just remarkably broad. We, and I say this being very conscious, that firstly, I'm speaking to a Brighton podcast, but secondly, you know, we are three white men who are all of an age somewhere between, I'll be generous to all of us, 30 and 55 uh, on this. And, you know, we so often end up being cast as though we are, the, and I've just, Christ, I've just banged on for ages, as though we are the spokespeople of the game because our fandom is the one which dominates the terraces and it dominates supporter culture, um, both in terms of supporter-based organisations and supporter-based fan media. We have to acknowledge that. And 
So therefore, when you say fan-led, one of my immediate concerns is if it's just loads of people who are like me, they're not all the fans. They are the, the vast majority of season ticket holders at Liverpool. But if they all disappeared, other people would buy those season ticket holders and it'd be more women and it'd be more people of colour and it'd be more families. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, that, if that space was freed up, you know, see the average age of Premier League supporters just rises every single year in terms of season ticket holders. And one of the reasons why is no one wants to give the season ticket up. You've got it. You're going to hold on to it. Access is a problem and a question. So I'm suspicious of language like fan-led. I can't think of what the better language is, but my concern with fan-led is genuinely the same faces who have the same views. I'll go back to your rivals, Crystal Palace, and I'm not just picking on them because I'm on your show. They had something around safe standing, and I'm in favour of safe standing. I'm in favour of looking at lots of aspects of the English game and reassessing them. But they had something on safe standing that was very aggressive towards Tracy Crouch. Now, I hold no candle for Tracy Crouch. She's a conservative, uh, a conservative member, then member of the, of the cabinet slash front bench. Um, and Tracy was trying to work through the safe standing review, and there was something, and it was just derogatory towards towards Tracy Crouch. And I remember thinking there's something wrong with tons of white fellas stood up holding banners that attack a woman member of parliament, that there's something that just doesn't sit right with me around that and that we've got to we've got to bear that stuff in mind around an issue like safe standing where so much of the discourse is will it lead to a certain type of behavior i as i say i support safe standing but what always worries me with campaigns like it is it does not feel like a lot of people who think that records were better when they were younger or getting involved that we would all like things to be like they were yesterday and the thing that football doesn't need is loads of people wanting to turn the clock back to the way in which it was yesterday because that's what we've done wrong we've held on to things when what we needed to do was anticipate where football is going to go next we needed to anticipate what the future of football was and actually safe standards a really good example of it you know there was there's been numerous points across the last 30 years where being at the cutting edge of rail seating in an english football sense would have been far better when we were in better nick than we are now so, you know, I think all the time we always end up fight. If we're not careful, we always end up having last year's arguments and last year's war and last year's battle. Mm. Football now, the way in which it is, the way in which it's consumed, my last point about this is that we understandably, and again, I am one of them, deify match-going supporters. We deify them, we act as that the match-going supporters are the heart of the game. I'm a match-going supporter, but the vast majority, the, not the vast majority, but the majority of football I consume in a normal season, let alone this COVID one, in a normal season through television. I go to 19 Liverpool matches a season uh, on my season ticket, plus European home games. I might get to somewhere between 10 and 14 aways, maybe some years a bit more, but maybe some years a bit less. Um, So therefore, all my other Liverpool watching is done through television. I watch our rivals. I watch other games. So as a match-going supporter, I need to simultaneously, what we need to simultaneously acknowledge is that we do consume the product most of the time. And the vast majority of football supporters consume the majority of their football through television. So at some sort of point, we've got to stop treating television like it's just always the enemy. And one of the things that's annoyed me with the discourse around COVID-19 is that for the first time, a lot of supporters and supporter-based organisations and supporter-based media have been asking television to come to the rescue. Whereas in the past, what we've all done is act as though we only really care about match-going supporters. And all of a sudden now, television is our, it's our charger, it's our white knight come to save the day. And the reason why is because we can't be in grounds. Whereas if we'd have thought about ways to work with television for longer ways to say to television to collaborate, ways to say, listen, there's all this money coming in from television, can you not just cut the prices? 
ways to say you should want to weigh ends to be full, ways to say you should want to weigh ends to be 10%, 15%, because it'll make your product better. So you should cut away prices, but 10%, 15% of the ground should be away supporters. And by the way, they should be at the side of the pitch. They should have a good experience. Ways to say that you want us, you need us for your product. If we'd have found ways to work like that, then we'd be much further along in these discussions. But what we do instead is we act as though kickoff times, television, it's always the enemy. It's always been a negative. It's always been a drain, ruining the game, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas it is and has been the majority of people's main way they consume the game for 20 years. Whether we like it or not, it's true. Yeah. I feel that well, certainly, to give an example, as a Bundesliga uh, streets ahead of us, light years ahead of the Premier League in the way they work and the way they work with clubs and fans and yeah. the experience, the football experience, safe standing they have, they've had for years. You know, it's kind of everything just seems like a different world there. It just, everything is so much better than we have over here. You can buy a drink in your seat and that sort of thing as well. Just a very simple level, you know, all these yeah. sorts of things. They trust fans over there. They they work with them rather than, in some ways, I think a lot of football um, clubs, especially the Premier League, sometimes regard fans as almost like, well, they're, they're supposed to have got to have them there, but they're not really, they don't get the experience they want and so do the same with the clubs. Exactly, and then we respond to that and we start acting as though, you know, for instance, uh, you know, kickoff times are hugely irritating. Uh, I think in general, I think, you know, as part of this and again, where I lead myself to be somewhat on my own or somewhat unpopular there's another phase of this which is you, you know you there's a lot of there's a hell of a lot of Liverpool supporters who do it these days uh but you know you don't have to you don't have to go to every game but it's actually quite healthy not to go to every game that you've got you should have other things going on in your life you know football is something that should you know and I literally present the Anfield rap and and, and, I, and I love football and I love the city of Liverpool but I don't feel as though a football game doesn't really count if I'm not present that's not true you know, and I want there to be Liverpool supporters present, but I don't feel as though, you know, I need to be at every single match. And if games occur at times that are inconvenient to me, well, there's a lot of people, you know, the way working patterns are now for so many of us, there's there's a lot of, you know, there's we've got a song at Anfield every other Saturday, it's me half day off and it's off to the match I go. And the reason why that song's sung and the reason why football matches kick off at 3pm is because historically people work Saturday mornings. So every other Saturday with me half day off and off to the match I go. And, that's not the case now. People work all sorts of different patterns. And what we always end up doing is, again, because we don't like any form of change, we act as though if a football match doesn't happen at Saturday at three o'clock, it's not an authentic football match. But it might just be more convenient for some people's working patterns that they kick off at half five on a Saturday or Friday night at 8 p.m. might just simply be better. Friday night, 8 p.m. is actually truer to the sentiment of the idea that people worked half day Saturday and then went to the match than Saturday 3 p.m. now is. Um you know, all of this stuff should be, we should be able to have frank and open debates. But what we've managed to turn a lot of the campaigning issues around football into is basically an argument for traditionalism, an argument for retroism, an argument that yesterday was better than today. Whereas it just isn't in terms of the football that we watch, in terms of our match day experiences. I, I'm gutted not to be at Brighton this weekend. We do a live show with the Brighton Supporters Club, Brighton Cop, and we get on really well there. And then we go out in Brighton afterwards. And if this game, was the way where it's been timed for a half 12 Saturday. You know, frankly, Jürgen can sod off. I'll go out down to Brighton Friday night. We'll do a live show. We'll have a big night out in Brighton, up early, in the grounds, at the Amex, stood around in the concourses afterwards, able to walk to the Brighton supporters' end, meet you guys for a beer, hmm. have a chat, do that. Come out then. The only issue is the Amex is a bit out of time, but we'll solve that. Don't worry at all. We'll just hang on, let the traffic die down. Back in Brighton, big afternoon out out into the clubs on the night out on the Saturday night, get up Sunday, go home. That's living. 
Football is better now than it ever has been. Uh, you know, if you take the COVID stuff out, it's better now than it ever has been. And what we do is so much of our discourse around it, the way in which we look at the game is we act as though, no, it was better in the 80s. It'd be better if I was to come to Brighton after to get the train, get legged across Brighton to get in the ground, get a police escort, come back out and need to, you know, and then I'd tell stories of it when we got back to Liverpool about, you know, I'd just rather have a lovely, lovely weekend in Brighton, to be honest. And that isn't, you know, whilst... There is a thing, you know, in, in Liverpool terms, I'm quite middle class. Everyone hears Liverpool accents and presumes you're not. Liverpool terms, I'm quite middle class. But that's not a, having, wanting to have a nice time is not a middle class pursuit. You know, I'm getting me burger from Burger Brothers. It's boss. It's the best burger in the country. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. And I'm having this fantastic time in Brighton. And I can't, you know, and I'm missing out on that this weekend. And I understand why. And I'm fine with that. But that's, that's a much better time. And what we can't keep doing is just continually saying the past was better. We can't because it wasn't. We're watching better players. At the minute right now, you've got Adam Lallana and Danny Welbeck playing for you. You've got Neil Moore. He's a lovely footballer. Uh, you know, Tarek Lamptey's come and he's, he's changed the way your whole side plays. I'm able to go through this Brighton side and, and they're, they're, they're a pleasure to watch. They're very good between both penalty areas and hopefully they'll continue on Saturday morning to not be as good as they should be in both penalty areas. But they will be very good between both penalty areas. This Liverpool team's the greatest Liverpool team ever. Just is. You know, this is, you know, and it's not just because Liverpool are winning at the moment. In 2015, when Liverpool were rubbish, 2015 was the best time to go to the match. It had been up to that point because society had changed and moved. And so much of our discourse around football says we wish that hadn't happened. We wish that. We wish it was the way in which it used to be. We wish that the toilet facilities were dreadful. We wish there weren't women in the ground. I want there to be women in the ground. I want the toilet facilities to be good. And then I want to go out on Saturday night and dance with said women. And maybe, you know, if, 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 if with, with a friendly breeze, kiss one of them. Not have the idea that all of this is, is meant to be this sort of dismal slog and grind that we, that we tell each other folk stories about and act as though the misery is part of the point, like a terrible Ken Loach kitchen, kitchen sink drama. Well, Neil, um, frank and open debate. If we did have a think tank, I would love to have you on it. Even, even if people <laughs> don't agree with every, with every word you've said, I think you... The night's out would be good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'd be good. All the best ideas we've come up with in pubs anyway, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you, you, you create a lot of points. You create a lot of points that are good points. You create a lot of points that are there to, to be debated and maybe yeah. evolved, perhaps. So I, I would love that. The second thing I wanted to mention is thanks for mentioning Burger Brothers. Now I'm really going to miss the game tomorrow more than I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> and great is. burgers down there. They're we really talk good. about it all the time. Yeah, oh, they're cracky, aren't they? Really good. Um, yeah. The other thing is we've, we've got to, we, we could talk about football admin and yeah. um, all the debates around it all day. We probably shouldn't because it'll be a 15-hour podcast probably. Um, <laughs> but what we will do is just have a quick break now and then we'll come back and we'll preview the game between the two sides, which kicks off in, well, we'll be playing in 24 hours from as we record this. So we'll be back in just a tick. Welcome back to part two, where we're now going to preview the big game. The Albion against Liverpool kicking off at lunchtime tomorrow. That's Saturday. Um, Neil, you've, uh, the midweek of rather inevitably, given your position in the Champions League table and given the schedule of games, um, had a weekend team out. Um, you had the two Williams guys in, didn't you, in defence? Yeah. Obviously, that's uh, partly due to a lot of injuries as well. Matip, I think it was one of, one of something like his fifth start in about 30, 40 games or something, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and your summer signing, Simakis, playing at left-back. Uh, Milner, Curtis Jones and Wijnaldum in midfield. And Salah, 
Origi and Mane up front with the other obvious exclusions being left out or put on the bench. Um, obviously, we're going to go back to a stronger team at the weekend that we're going to see here, aren't we? Um, I, I remember listening to your podcast before the Leicester match and you were listing Virgil van Dijk out for the season with a knee, Gomez the same, Trent, um, Alexander-Arnold, December with a calf injury, I think you were saying. And then obviously we had Salah was out with COVID at the time. You had Henderson with a, a minor injury. You had Fabinho with a hammy. Uh, he's, he's obviously coming back into the equation. Um, Alcantara, still not known. Same with Oxlade-Chamberlain. And I think Williams had a had a kick to the foot that you were worrying about at the time. Um, so that was the only, that was the, the, the minor <laughs> the minor issues you had at the time. And I think Andy Robertson had also had a bit of an issue, although he'd returned during mm. the internationals, hadn't he? Um, what's the latest? <laughs> Where are we at? Because I've lost track now. Um, Henderson's been training with the team, so Henderson may well be involved on Saturday morning. Um, yeah. So Henderson's around. You can't quite place what on earth's going on with Thiago Alcantara. So, you know... It, it wouldn't surprise, honestly, if he was in the team, if he just saw the team and it dropped and he was starting, I wouldn't go, that's absolutely insane. I'd go, okay, you know, because he's he's he sort of appeared quickly twice in the past. I think Liverpool are very much managing his conditioning because he goes very deep into the Champions League with Bayern Munich. So he, he had absolutely no break, to be quite honest with you, before uh, before he became part of our setup. So I think Liverpool are going to be cautious with him. And it wouldn't surprise me if Liverpool have got the idea that maybe by the time we get to... Well, let's say around December the 12th, we actually want to be picking from 20. So we're not going to rush back those who are on the periphery at the minute. Chamberlain's meant to be close, but I don't think he'll make this one. But again, I think Chamberlain might be on a bit of a, a bit of a, 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 an arc towards getting some time at some point in the next few games. It wouldn't surprise me if he features in either of the remaining European games as a bit of a run because he needs to get, get minutes into his legs, to use that cliché. So I think I expect Liverpool to start something that looks a little bit like Becker, not dissimilar to the Leicester side. It's, you know, Becker in goal, uh, Matip and Fabinho at centre-half. Milner, I think, will start right back. He was excellent against Leicester, to be honest with you, and really handled the threat well. Uh, I'd expect Robertson on the left-hand side. Um, I would expect, uh, in the middle of the park, Curtis Jones to be asked to go again, Jeannie Wijnaldum to be asked to go again. And one other, depending on where fitness is, because Naby Keita might be a bit closer. I think he came off predominantly from a precautionary basis. So he may be against Leicester, wasn't it? Against Leicester, yeah. So he may be a, a decent <laughs> comparison point with Lallana in that if you feel as though he's, he's he's been able to get back involved, there might be someone else in who's a bit mad in the middle of the park uh, as a bit of a surprise. And then up front, I think it will be Liverpool's front three to start with. I think Salah, it felt to me like Salah almost treated Atalanta like a training game. Um, he got the hour, he was... He didn't look sharp at all because he's not been able to train for a couple of weeks because of the COVID restrictions. So I, I really got the impression that that was almost like just put an hour in his legs and, and hopefully get him ready to go for Brighton. I think hmm. from a Liverpool point of view, they think Mane can run and run and at some point they might be proven wrong, but at the minute they're riding it, so we'll see where we end up. And I think Firmino will start. He might go 4-2-3-1 and play Jota as well um, in amongst yeah. this uh, because rather than solve the midfield conundrum, basically play another forward. Make the pitch yeah. massive, protect the fullbacks a bit more as well. Um, so we might do that, and Jota at the minute sort of demands that start. But Liverpool have got a game on Tuesday against Ajax. They'll be desperate to to win because it'll just confirm uh, progression in the. Yeah, I was going to say that's the one the one slight issue now, isn't it? That having lost midweek, 
you kind of do need to beat Ajax or at least get a draw anyway, I suppose. Because if you draw, then you should be able to beat Midland. No, um, I think a, a draw just puts us through because Ajax and Atalanta have still just got, to, just yeah. got to play each other and they can't both win. So a draw just puts us through. So we won't want to be too soft against Ajax, I don't think. And also we have the excellent performance at Atalanta away. That came from playing Saturday. Tuesday was Atalanta and Sunday was Man City. But Liverpool committed to the Atalanta game away in a way that they just don't to the home, home game. They, they legged Atalanta early, ran them all over the pitch. Um, and I think the idea was, well, we've got recovery time, so we can commit to this match because we've got loads of time to recover for Sunday. And it's come the same way. We've got Brighton Saturday, Ajax Tuesday, and then Wolves Sunday. So I think Liverpool will feel as though they can they can have two intense games, Brighton and Ajax, recover, and then deal with, with Wolves. And the good thing about playing Wolves is you sort of know what Wolves are going to do. You don't know what Brighton are going to do, but you sort of know what Wolves are going to do because they do the same stuff all the time. So you can plan around that. Yeah, and you brought on three players just after the hour, didn't you? You have Firmino... Uh, Hotta and uh, or Jota and um, Robertson all came on, didn't they? Um, in the midweek match. Mm. So, I mean, Jota's obviously he's been a, a superb player. Um, I've, I've always thought he's a good player, um, but he's done better than I thought he would for you guys, both yeah. in terms of how quickly he's assimilated and the fact that he seems to have escalated his his um, prowess even more. Um, how much of that is to do with playing with better players? I don't know. All sort of good side anyway. But um, how have you found him? He's been pretty good, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been tremendous. It's 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 interesting. I think it's in part playing with better players. I think it's also the way Liverpool play sort of suits him. And there might have been aspects, certainly last season of Wolves' play that suited him a little bit less. I think Wolves dialed down the intensity. Uh not least because they had European commitments and they, yeah, they had that unbelievably long season through the Europa League. And I think Wolves sort of they got themselves like they bought Neto, Triore came alive. If they wanted to play three five two, then they were picking between Triore and, and Jota, and he didn't quite get a run of games. Uh, but I think in general he's 23, and sometimes you know players are sort of a bit a bit ready to kick on at 23. You know you get the best of footballers I think as they mature. So I think Liverpool have timed the signing really well. It's worth saying, you know, and I don't say this. I'm not trying to disparage Liverpool in any way. We paid 45 million for him. You know, it, it, people are sort of talking like it's a massive surprise or like he's belying some sort of price tag. He's about our fourth highest ever signing, uh, maybe fifth. You know, so Liverpool. I, I think the thing that will surprise them. Uh, internally, it wouldn't, you know, I think as well, is just how much he's done so soon. I think that Liverpool buy him for five years, they bought him for the long haul, they thought he'll be able to compete with the front three this year and maybe take a place at some point in the next couple of years because a lot of those footballers are 28, 29 now and Liverpool might either look to move one of them on or they'll drop down the pecking order. I think what he's done is he's very much demanded the attention now um, and he just looks really, really strong in front of goal and I think that that's the... That's the key thing to me. It, it, he looks, I was thinking this season, well, you'd be made up to get 15 goals from him, whereas right now he's on a trajectory for 25. That won't always be the case. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, you get me back on at some point in January and February and we're saying, well, the goals have dried up a bit. You know, that wouldn't surprise me at this point. But while he's while he's on that wave, I think Liverpool will ride it with him and hope that he, you know, he continues to produce like that. And it's what happened with Mane. It's what happened with Salah. It's worth pointing that out. You know, they started scoring and they just haven't really stopped, um, to be honest with you. So I think that Liverpool will feel as though they'll keep putting the opportunities in front of them and hopefully he'll keep gobbling them up. Yeah. Well, our head-to-head record against you, um, looking back, is four wins, which is quite good, actually, considering um, eight draws and 19 defeats. The first win was 14th of Jan 61, League Division 2, would you believe? <laughs> a 3-1 win um, after you'd won 2-0 at our place. Second win was the 6th of March 1982, which is quite an impressive year to get a result against you. That was 1-0 at Anfield. Um, mm. Third win, 20th of Feb, 83. 
FA Cup fifth round, uh, two one win, which I think is our finest result against you by far because it was there's a cup cup run where we got to the final. Yeah. Um, it was the fifth round. You were virtually unstoppable as a side back then. Um, so to win on your patch was an incredible result. Um, and then 29th of Jan 84, the following year in the FA Cup at the Goldstone, a 2 0 win. Um, biggest defeats 5 0 back in 58 in Division 2. And the other FA Cup match that we don't like to mention, we did score more goals than you in that game, though. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, three of them were at the wrong end um, in a 6 1 thrashing. Um, Dunks was particularly good. I thought the way he juggled it into the net was highly <laughs> impressive. I'm sure you'll agree, Neil. Um, <laughs> you might as well do it in style, mightn't you? you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, as far as this game goes, um, this this particular one, um, what we with the Lamptey incident um, that we had for the Villa game, um, you would have seen that um, he got sent off for two yellows. The first one was debatable, but agreeable in one sense the second one was ridiculous it was so soon after and so tame and so unintentional that it really didn't warrant a second yellow agree um on the on the one thanks cheers uh, well on the one hand we 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 took that with a pinch of salt thinking well it's liverpool it's it's one game where it's kind of more or less a write-off because the one thing with our head-to-head record is in the premier league we've got diddly squat <laughs> so you know it's a write-off in one sense having said that um, we've got at least a little bit more of a chance of pulling off a surprise if he is in the team. So we are still pretty annoyed about the about that decision at the weekend. Um, because for me, one area we may have been able to get get out of you is obviously with with your advancing fullbacks potential mm. with Lamptey sh- sheer pace to actually. And he set up create the goal for that something. in that situation last year, didn't he? For Trossard, yeah, to get mm. back in the game. And Trossard's available again, apparently, um, for, the, for the match as well. So that's a big disappointment for us. Um, I've got to say I'm not very confident we can get a result. You've probably guessed yeah. that from what I've said just now. Peace is shaking his head as well. He's not very keen since, on... Since the first season, they tended to be reasonably close matches. So, I mean, they yeah. have been... They've not been... I think it was 1-0 and 2-1 at Anfield and hmm. 3-1 last year. But at 2-1, it looked like it could be... I mean, we basically gifted you two goals in the first 10 minutes last, se- yeah. last season. And then actually played quite well after that but yeah it was just too much obviously yeah, which is a great shame actually wasn't it anyway and you give them two goals in the first yeah. 10 minutes it's ridiculous it's like I'm, I'm of the view I think it's going to be a really difficult game for Liverpool to be honest I think that you know there's both underlying numbers to suggest that this is the case but also I think I just think that Brighton are a good side. Um, I think you've been unfortunate so far this season. I was really pleased to see you get something against Aston Villa, not least because I think that the, the team and club deserved to at least have a second win on the board by this stage of the season. I, it would be scandalous to me uh, for Newcastle United to go through a season uh, serenely in mid-table and a side that plays the football that Brighton plays to be sucked into a relegation battle uh, would just be utterly ridiculous. So I was pleased to see you get the results against Villa for that reason. And the other reason why was because I never like facing a side where I think before a ball's been kicked the due a bit of luck. Um, so, you know, the bit of luck comes at the end of that match last week, hopefully, and then from there you can go back to your unlucky selves, uh, hopefully from a Liverpool point of view. But I think it'll be really hard, and I think it'll be really hard for Liverpool to assert themselves because I think Brighton moved the ball, frankly, excellently. I think between both penalty areas, you know, Brighton for me are a top 10 side. Um, I think... They've been unfortunate at the heart of the defence this season and they've been unfortunate with a couple of the goals that have gone in in the end. Reese James has won when you just turn the game around against Chelsea. is a really, really good example of, you know, of just being that... It's obviously really good from James, but he's just whacked it from distance and it's gone in the back of the net. And yeah, that happens in football, but the timing of it, it was just cruel. I think that Brighton at that point felt like they were the side in the ascendancy. And, you know, I don't think Liverpool will get one of them because you only suffer one of them so many times in a season, but... 
for me, I think Liverpool are going to be made to absolutely work for it over 90 minutes if they do get the three points. And I think that the game will never be dead. I think that, that you pointed that out about the close games. And I think Liverpool expect 90 minutes of Brighton moving them around, passing the ball very, very well, working it through through phases of the pitch really impressively. Very rarely going ridiculously direct, but being able to shift the pace of a game, which is where I think at times Brighton are even better than a side like Wolves, to be quite honest with you. I think if you were to drop Raul Jimenez and maybe Adama Traore into, into Brighton's squad, I think very quickly Brighton hit 60 points, given the talent that's already there. Uh, and Wolves very quickly look like a 40-point team. So it's always going to be that. And I think Welbeck will make a difference to this side as well. So I'm not taking it lightly. Do I think Liverpool will win the game? Yeah, I do. But that's because, you know, last season we won 26 of the first 27. I'm somewhat conditioned to watching Liverpool find a way to win a footy match. But the other thing I'm conditioned to is we won 26 of the first 27 and many of them, including Brighton and Anfield, were quite close. So I think I think it, I think it will be a close, hard-fought game. It wouldn't surprise me if it's a game where we mentioned before about Jota and listen, the manager may well start him and he may well be right to start him. But I wonder if the Liverpool manager might quite like to have a sub. He might quite like to have someone on sixty where he can turn to, look at his bench, and say, "Right, you, you're going to change this for me." And it wouldn't surprise me if the game is level or very close with half an hour left, and Liverpool maybe just finds a way last 25, 30 minutes to, to turn it in their favour against, as I say, I think it'll be a, a really solid, strong Brighton performance with a manager who's clearly a clever man who will have identified a couple of areas he feels he can work with Liverpool. Well, when we're getting together for our Zoom terrace, me and a few of the lads um, watching the game, um, I can see myself cracking a beer open at about the hour mark in anticipation of it being a comfort drink. <laughs> As Jota comes on, they go, oh no, here we go, just when we were doing well. Um, but no, having Welbeck in there has, has been good because it's created some extra competition for places. It has given us more of a focal, focal point up front, which I think could help us. It has been the missing ingredient. Obviously, it's subject to him staying fit and everything else. And but maybe forming a partnership with Morpé if we're playing yeah. a three-five-two, where we've got two guys up front, um, that's where we could potentially have a, a better benefit going forward for the rest of the season. And Andone, just... who's who's a head case, um, and we thought was dead and buried after some stuff he said in the foreign press while he was on loan, is now potent- potentially back in the fold. Apparently, going into the new year. Yeah, there's a somewhat pretentious oh. phrase used to describe centre-forwards at times, and it tends to only be used to describe absolutely brilliant ones with with, with great records, which is a nine and a half. Um, people like to use the phrase nine and a half. And I like I quite like it as a phrase. I sort of understand what it means, but we very rarely apply it to footballers who, for instance, aren't Roberto Baggio. Whereas I think that I think there's something about Morpe and Welbeck where they are actually both nine and a halves. Neither of them are ever quite going to be 25 a season scorers, but they're both more than capable of bringing one another into the game. And I think they could dovetail quite nicely over the course of a season. You know, they're, they're not a classic big man, little man partnership. It's not, you know, you're not dealing with Glenn Murray here. But for me, I'm, I, I feel as though, you know, they're both, you know, I get the impression between the two of them, you could well, over the course of a campaign, get 30 Premier League goals out of them. And that's, you know, that's something to build from. It's something to start with. And I think that they could they could prove, you know, Welbeck's touch for more pay last week when the keeper smothers it. It's a lovely touch, that. It really is. And it's someone who's got real appreciation as to where he is on the pitch. But whilst more pay ends up being criticised because he misses it, he at least makes the run. And... You know, I think that's worth pointing out as well. So he understands where Welbeck is. And, you know, 
this isn't to sort of act as though they're going to be absolutely brilliant or that they're going to be prolific or anything like that, but they're both more than capable for me of being one in three. And if you've got two centre forwards and they're both one in three, then that gets you to two in three. And if you've got two in three, then before you know where you are, you're just looking for someone else, let's say Lallana chipping in with somewhere between seven and 11. Uh, you know, a couple of other of the footballers knocking around Marsh gets himself to five. And suddenly there's, you know, there's a decent, there's a healthy enough goal return there over the course of a campaign. And I expect to see that from more paying well back. And I am mildly concerned with them against Liverpool's makeshift centre-half partnership, not least because it will be playing two on two. And I think that most centre-halves at the minute, you get to play a lot of the football against one, two of you against one. And obviously there's people joining, but you pass your one on and you look after them. More paying well back could give Fabinho and a massive, a tough start, a tough time playing two on two because they won't be able to help and support each other. You've mentioned Adam Lallana and there, there is a doubt as to whether he'll be available or not. Thanks very much for Adam Lallana, by the way. Uh, we no, appreciate him. Um, but he's, um, yeah, I mean, if he is playing, he can have a big influence on the game. He's one of one of a few um, uh, players that play for both clubs. Jimmy Case, Michael Robinson, the late great, recently yeah. departed. Uh, Dean Saunders, um, a lot will remember. And obviously, um, in terms of the on and off the pitch connection, there's Sammy Hookier, who wasn't great for us as a coach, but was a good player for you guys, very good player. Um, the one I've left left out, I'm leaving till last, is, of course, Mark Lawrenson, who does his predictions. Peter, can you guess the outcome he's predicted for the I game of the weekend? I haven't seen it, so it's not really a case of guessing. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> seen it, but let me ask, is it 2-1 Liverpool? It You're not far off. It's 2-0, yeah. yeah. Um, he predicts fair, us though, to lose nearly every week. <laughs> I think you know, he often puts Brighton down in, in that sort of, in his like, kind of result with predictions, but I don't think any of us would disagree with particularly with him there. No, not on this one. It was it was two 0 He's gone for, and I mean, I I'm inclined to agree with him. I think it might be a two 0 a two one, three one. I think we'll score. I think three one actually, or a repeat of last season may well be. Yeah, I'll go three one as well. We look yeah. like scoring generally now. We've got the for for the first time really, I'd say in the Premier League, certainly a, a proper run. We do look like we're going to score goals. It's just that we hmm. our defending is probably as bad as it's been the whole time in the Premier League. So it's you know. Yeah. If it, well, you could argue that one is a result of the other one because we push forward more and we leave more gaps. And as a result, we look more, yeah, more, more even under Potter last season, I thought we looked more solid at the back. But this year we look quite open. And Neil, uh, can we pin you to a, to yeah, a score I'd, prediction? I'd, I'd be, uh, I would be what I anticipated Lawrence to be. I'd be 2-1. I do think Brighton will score um, at some point during the game. I think they'll get themselves an opportunity and I think someone will take it. Uh, I think Liverpool... I think... I say this about Liverpool games all the time, so I am very boring, but I think it'll be a second goal game. Um, hmm. I think that if Liverpool get the second goal, I think they'll win the game. Um, I think a lot of games are first goal games, and I think that if you actually look at last weekend's results, uh, all nine, the first nine matches, Wolves Southampton was the only exception where the first goal dictated who won the match. Um, and I think that given, and that's in part because of the energy question at the minute around teams, I think there's a lot of sides. And the one thing I would say that could work for Liverpool if they can start relatively quickly is, you know, Graham Potter's not a stupid man. He's not going to exhaust his players 2-0 down against the champions at home with 25 to go. He may well just say, we just take this and we, we get out and it's not been that bad a result. You know, he's not going to... The same not... could be said for you guys as well at 2-0 if, oh. you know, with, with Ajax to come. Yeah, no, I... I don't think I, I think Liverpool will be I think Liverpool will be very, very sensible. You know, I mentioned before the Manchester City game. I think both sides accept the draw with about fifteen to go there. Certainly both managers do neither of them change it in a way which is we're going for the victory here. So yeah, I, I think it's very possible that everyone just sort of accepts where they are. But if it's two one though, I think Brighton will push till the very end. I'm expecting uh, Brighton to push till the very end because I do think it will I do think Brighton will score, but I think Liverpool should just about have too much. But genuinely 
of all of our next few matches. And I'm not, I am not just saying this because I'm on your show. You know, I've got we've got Wolves to come very quickly. We've got Fulham. Of the, the these are our next three weekend matches, and this is the one I am most concerned about. I think we'll. I think we've now got our blueprints as to how we beat Wolves. I think Fulham are rubbish. Um, I think Brighton can hurt us, and also I think there's another thing here, which is I don't think Jurgen Klopp will read the Brighton team sheet and be a hundred percent certain what the formation is. Hmm. Yeah, we are. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Yeah, because I've not seen hmm. it generally. <laughs> None of us are. Yeah. Well, Neil, unfortunately, I'm not sure is sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> as, as you've said, Neil, unfortunately, we can't can't be um, having beers down in Brighton. There's no Brighton Cop. There's no Burger Brothers at the moment for us. Um, but let's hope that we can both enjoy. All all three of us can enjoy the game. Obviously, we're hoping for different outcomes. Um, but either way round, best best of luck for the rest of the season. But let's also be doing it next season. Uh, Brighton, I'll be astounded if Brighton don't stay up. And uh, when they do, let's all have a fantastic night out in Brighton. Why not? Let's do that. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> so until then, uh, from us, uh, thanks again to Neil and Peter. Up the Albion, stand or fall. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.